encourages have your Bible open today, as I'm sure you normally do, but just it'll help with the orientation of what we're going to be talking about. So uh, let me leave this to you then. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of the disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings? replied Jesus. Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. And Jesus was sitting on the Mount of El Olives, opposite the temple. Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? Thank you. Thanks to me. On an interesting passage we're going to look at here today. What? I don't know whether you've ever heard a sermon on Mark chapter 13 before or the issues that are in it. I have not spoken on it very often, I have to say. And we're continuing our, our journey through the book of Mark because we're focusing on Jesus to help us while with all the madness around us in the world today. We need to have something of a positive focus on something and there's nothing much more positive passages which is a little more indifferent shall we say and I suppose the title of this lesson could simply be watch out perhaps just watch out and now and again you have to watch out for something maybe watching out for a virus though you can't see it but try to be careful anyway there's a lot in this passage about guarding and being careful and we're trying to be the best we can and wearing masks and different things we're doing um, now and again parents especially want their children to watch out for something when they're very young is usually a passing car. Um, we probably, most of us parents have been in that situation where uh, one of our children might have been about to step into the road, not noticing the honking great bus about to run them down. Uh, Penny and I had an experience one time when I think it was Lydia was about to step into the path of a bus and a stranger just grabbed her and pulled her back right next to us. Is in, uh, is in Manchester. And you, you know, that's what makes your heart go like crazy, right? And this idea of watch out is not something only for children. The watch out command is for all of us. And there's some things in this passage to uh, watch out for. Some things to watch out for are more important than others. And we can get scared sometimes by the wrong things. And what I think is going on in this chapter is Jesus is helping his followers to understand, in a sense, what to be concerned about and what not to be concerned about. And of course, this fits together with what we looked at last week in Mark chapter 12, where the key hot point in that passage we looked at was Jesus saying, love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, and everything else comes underneath that. That's, that's the priority. So what I'm going to do with chapter 13, I'm going to do my best to explain some of the complexities in it without going into all the details, and then let's talk a little bit about, um, about what this means for us. So also on the Watford Word handout, I have put some notes on this, which I think and I hope you might find helpful for your own Bible study of this passage. So we're not going to try and do all of it here today. In previous uh, weeks, we have just taken one section from each chapter. But because this chapter all holds together as one unit, I couldn't do that this week. So we are going to look at the whole chapter, but we're going to sort of skim through some parts of it here. So let's go through the chapter together and see what God reveals to us this morning. So at the beginning here, we have Jesus uh, leaving the temple. In fact, this is the last time he's in the temple. After this, he never goes back. And one of the disciples says, what massive stones. Look at these magnificent buildings, which of course were magnificent. 
And so we have uh, the remains of the temple today. That's uh, from when Penny and I were there three years ago. I don't suppose it's changed much since. So there's now the uh, dome of the rock on the top, of course. And that's not how the temple looked in, in the time of Jesus exactly, but that is the location. And some of those stones are, are still there from that time. And if you're looking at, yes, it's not entirely. Okay, there we go. Oh, too far. Back one. Perhaps you can help me out there. I can go back one. Thank you very much. So um, in the destruction of the temple, stones fell from the top. That's looking up towards the top of what's now the Temple Mount. And stones fell to the ground underneath. If we can go to the next slide there, Akin, uh, to the pavement below and looking down. And they, some of them were so heavy, they smashed through the stone pavements all the way through into the caverns that were underneath. Some of those stones are as large as 25 feet long by 8 foot by 12 feet. Sorry, I don't know how many meters that is. Someone can do the uh, conversion for me. Uh, they reckon some of the stones that are still left in the area, uh, they can't actually weigh them um, because they're too heavy. There's no machine they can get in place to weigh them. But they estimate that some of the stones there are between 470 and 600 tons each. Now we think, what's the average weight of a car? Is it two tons? Something like that, roughly? Average? Between one and two, depending, okay. So um, 600 tons, how many cars is that? 300 cars, maybe? Three or 400 cars, that's one stone. So you can imagine, you know, we think of a magnificent building as being something, you know, sizable, but this is a temple built out of stones like that, uh, piled up massively. King Herod the Great had died 24 years, 25 years before this time. He'd been the one responsible for rebuilding the temple and it still wasn't finished. It was still building in the time of Jesus because it was such a complex, massive area of building. So no wonder the disciples were impressed. And they point this out, and then Jesus says, you see all these great buildings, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. That's hard to grasp, isn't it? There are things that may well come to pass that are hard to grasp. I can't imagine the end of, say, our current economic system, uh, however you want to define it. I can't imagine it, though. I can't imagine an end to the city of London and the banking system. And I, I'm not wishing for that to come to an end right now. It'd be rather messy. But I assume that at some point that system will end because it didn't exist in its current form, what, a thousand years ago. So it's, it's developed and whatever develops can be undeveloped, I suppose. It's hard for us to imagine how could our government not function the way it is? How could there be no government or different form of government alien to us right now? But nothing is permanent. Jesus says... This, and then the disciples ask him later when he's back on the other side, of, on the east side of the Mount of Olives. Four of them say, when will these things happen? I find it fascinating that they don't question whether they will happen. Isn't that interesting? He is predicting something they could not possibly have imagined. And yet, when as soon as he says it's going to happen, they have come now to a point of faith and trust in Jesus. That even when he says the most outlandish things that seem impossible... They've now come to the point where they can say, ah, okay, that sounds strange. But rather than, are you sure? They are now in a place of faith where they say, what do they say? When? What will be the sign? So this is where they are. And then Jesus goes on to say this. So let's go through this briefly. Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. 
When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, earthquakes in various places, famines. These are the beginning of the birth pains. What's he talking about here? Watching out for the birth pains of the end. What end is he talking about here? I think we can uh, safely say that the end he's talking about here is not the end of time, but the destruction of the temple that took place in AD 70. Roman armies fought with the Jewish armies uh, in the late 60s, culminating in the siege of Jerusalem in AD 70. Titus and his army entered Jerusalem uh, and then uh, broke down the temple and burned it. Um, a, a Jewish historian called Josephus uh, described the scene as the whole of the Temple Mount being on fire. Like it was, in fact, he used the phrase boiling with fire. The whole of the Temple Mount. And that was what was going on in that period of time. And so Jesus is saying, what's been going on in Jesus' life before this in earlier chapters, of course, is that Jesus had been in conflict with the Temple authorities and essentially at this point, what he's telling his disciples is, you know what, I've tried. I, I turned over the, the tables of the money changers. I, I tried to cleanse the temple. I tried to teach the right things. I tried to correct the misunderstandings and the wrongheartedness of Pharisees or teachers of the law or scribes. But you know what, fundamentally and ultimately, it's all going to burn. Hope is gone. And that's essentially what he's saying. And in verse 9, we carry on. You must be on your guard. You'll be handed over to the local councils, flogged in the synagogues. This is talking about, obviously, after he's uh, resurrected and gone back to heaven. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses of them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time. For this is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone, you, everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. So we've got in mind Jesus predicting this siege and destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in a few years' time. And now he goes on to say, you need to be on your guard. You will be persecuted. Between when I leave and when that happens, there's going to be very intense persecution. And, you know, we live in a time where we don't suffer this kind of opposition and how fortunate we are in a way. But still, there is opposition to us and our faith and to living it out and sharing it with other people. There is ridicule, especially for our teenagers at school, perhaps. The ridicule of the idea that you would spend your Sunday mornings at church rather than in bed or doing something else more fun must be something fundamentally deeply wrong with you and disturbingly oppressive about your parents. So this happens to teenagers, but it happens to some of the, us as adults too, that we get that sense of ridicule. But he says, what's going to happen is there'll be persecution, but also the gospel will spread widely. It's going to go. It's going to go to all nations. And is that literally all the nations of the earth? I think when we're thinking about Jesus here, I think he's thinking about the nations that would be reached by his followers in that next generation. So the known world of that time in that area is more likely, I think, what he's talking about, the Mediterranean basin, as well as spreading a bit beyond that. And we do know the gospel went widely uh, in such a short time. By the time of AD 70, uh, remains have been found in the UK, actually, in Manchester, uh, with Christian emblems on, from around the year AD 70. And it's thought that there may not have been churches in the UK by that time, but there were probably Christians in the UK who were probably slaves brought by Roman masters because a large proportion of the early church were slaves. 
and they'd have had Roman masters, and Romans would have been posted uh, in the military or, or betrayed to places like England, and they would have brought their slaves with them. And so it's thought that Christian slaves were in this country and probably isolated from other brothers and sisters. They had to stand firm. They had to be on their own at times because if you were a slave, you couldn't say to your master, oh, you're going to England? I'm sorry, I, I need to stay here because I want to be with my church. That's just not going to work in, uh, in Roman society. You had to come. And so this is the kind of situation I think we're talking about here. The gospel went all over the place. He says, that's going to happen, uh, but don't worry. The spirit will help you. He's going to be with you and you can stand firm. Then verse 14, when you see, what on earth is this about? When you see the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. So Mark's put that in. Well, you know what I'm talking about. That's what he's saying. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get to their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. This is a tough gig right here. What's going on? He warns them to be aware of when the end is imminent. This, the end he's talking about, which I think is the destruction of the temple in AD 70. Whatever the abomination that causes desolation is, and there are lots of theories, it'll be obvious to them. And maybe it's not that obvious to us, but if it's a warning to them rather than, than to us, at least it would have been obvious to them. There are um, similar phrases within Jewish uh, apocalyptic writing uh, of other uh, times when there was an abomination in the temple, like in the time of the Maccabees, when... Uh, somebody sacrificed a pig in the temple. So it's that kind of idea. It may simply have been, the, the in this case, it may simply have been the armies of Rome entering the temple precincts, might have been the idea, as they carried <laughs> the standard of their god, the god Caesar, into the Holy of Holies and that kind of place. It could have been something like that. I don't think there's any way to be absolutely sure, and anybody who tells you they're absolutely sure, I think is wrong. That's my humble opinion. Um, so that's, I think, what is going on. And it's a dreadful, dreadful time. He tells them, run away, flee to the mountains. We do know that Christians took this seriously in the time of the Jewish wars, and a lot of them fled Jerusalem and went to a place called Pella, which is not in the mountains, but is away from Jerusalem, and many others presumably did go to the mountains. They took this seriously, and many Christians survived where they would have died if they'd stayed in Jerusalem. So the Josephus, that uh, Jewish historian I mentioned, said that so many Jews were crucified that the hills were denuded of trees to provide the crosses. So that Israel, that area around Israel was deforested to make crosses because so many people were crucified. And that would have included Christians because the Romans at that point didn't distinguish between Jews and Christians. For them, Christians were just another sect in Judaism. So Christians would have been crucified too. That's what's going on. No wonder he says there's been nothing like it before or nothing like it will come again. It's awful. Verse 20. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. We can go back, back in, leave it, uh, the previous one. Said, yeah, that's fine for now, thanks. Um, look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I've told you everything ahead of time. Be on your guard. He's God. He says, God will look after his people. Don't be deceived by false messiahs. Let's go on. Verse 24. 
in those days, following that distress, sun will be darkened, moon will not give its light, stars will fall from the sky, heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, the people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. He'll send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Once again, going on right here. So, um, the coming of the Son of Man, the only time in the Gospels that Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, although others do, we're talking here cosmic disturbances and probably what we uh, is called eschatological language. What is eschatological language? It is language which is uh, uh, referring and talking about the end times or the end of something. Uh, and it's not meant to be taken literally when it's used in this kind of a way. It's indicating the coming of the Christ. And this is the same way that God comes in the Old Testament. Same kind of language in the Old Testament used by many of the prophets when God is coming to judge his people and or rescue them. Sometimes it's in judgment on his people, sometimes in judgment on other nations that are oppressing his people, and sometimes to rescue his people from those oppressing them. This is the language that is used. It does sound like the second coming of Christ. We have to say that when you read it like this. But it could also be his coming in judgment on uh, those who are oppressing his people in AD 70 and rescuing them as those who flee do manage to get away from uh, the persecution of the Romans. It could be it could be that. It could be his coming judgment on Jerusalem and the temple and saving his people from the destruction of the temple, perhaps. The sun and moon are referenced here in, um, in a reverse of what happens in Genesis. So it's a reversal of what God made that is good, that is going on. 28. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near right at the door. Truly I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So Jesus is giving uh, them uh, warnings to read the signs of the times that they, they are in. If the verses we read before are about the second coming, then it doesn't make sense of what Jesus says here, that this generation will not pass away before all these things are fulfilled. So it does seem to strengthen the idea that these things are not necessarily about the second coming, but about what happens in the first century. Of course, sometimes in the scriptures, there's a double fulfillment, which we'll have to go into another time, when there is a fulfillment at the time and a future fulfillment, and possibly that's what's going on in this chapter. I'll leave you to decide, because I don't think anybody can be definitive about this, and I'm not going to dare try. So this is, I think, what's going on. Let's wrap up verses 32 to the end, and then I've got a few questions for us. But about the day or hour, no one knows. So precise dates are not known. And by the way, he's obviously saying, therefore, don't try and speculate. No one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house, puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, tells the one at the door, keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. Uh, when our children got to the age where we could leave them at home, uh, as Mulligan and family have been left at home with Danny and Becky away this weekend, um, when we got to that point with our children, uh, and we, Penny and I enjoyed, oh, we, we actually can go out now. I, I, I forgot what that's like. We can go out for dinner, just the two of us, and some of us know this kind of uh, blessing. Uh, and uh, we got to that point, and what, what used to happen was we'd be out, and then around, I don't know, say 10 o'clock, we get a phone call. 
and the phone call was from one of our children. And it was, um, Mum and Dad, are you having a good time? Oh, good, good. Um, uh, when do you think you might be back? <laughs> and because what they were doing was they were trying, they were checking and then running around, tidying everything up at the last minute, just from when we, we got back into the house. That's okay. We didn't ever find any evidence of anything too terrible. Um, but he's saying, this is not how you should treat God. Like, run or do your own thing, your own way, in your own time. Have Do whatever you want. And then when, when you think Jesus is coming back, suddenly get your act together. That's just not honoring of God. And it is not going to work because even Jesus didn't know the day. He said, be alert. But I, can't, I, don't, I don't know the exact date when this is going to happen. We don't know when he's coming back. So we are told to keep alert. The word for be watchful, by the way, here, when he says watch, that's the Greek word gregorite. And that's the word from which we get the, the name Gregory. And Gregory was one of the favorite words for Christians in the first century. So they named their children Gregory as a, you know, be watchful. That's a favorite name. And there are lots of Gregories in the early church. If you go back and do, look at the early writings of, of early Christians. So that next slide, Akin, if you don't mind, is what I'd like us to do with the rest of our time on this topic is simply this. Have you noticed how many warnings there are in this chapter? Watch out, verse 5. Do not be alarmed, verse 7. Be on your guard, verse 9. Do not worry, verse 11. Stand firm, verse 13. Flee, in 14. Pray, in 18. Do not be deceived, in 21 and 22. Be on your guard, in verse 23. Be on your guard again, in verse 33. Be alert, in verse 33. Watch, in verse 35. And watch, with an exclamation mark, in verse 37, just in case we missed the point. And my thought is that for us sitting here today, it's this quality of the way that we think about our lives and our spiritual lives that is what Jesus wants us, I would think, to focus on. If we go to that next slide, I think it's uh, there's one more there. So I'd like to ask you for a moment to, to turn to someone near to you and have, let's spend five minutes discussing maybe one of those questions, not all of them. You can think about the rest of them in the fellowship or when you get home or tomorrow morning when you're having a devotional or something. But pick one of those questions and talk about them together. From what you know of scripture, what you know of what it means to have a relationship with God, how, what is it that perhaps we need to watch out for? Maybe it's not the abomination that causes desolation, I don't know, but what should we be watching out for? Or perhaps, how can we stay alert without being anxious? That can be an interesting dilemma, can't it? I want to be alert, but we do that. Or you could talk about what what helps us to stand firm when we're under attack? Because Jesus talks about that. What helps you to stand firm in your faith? Or fourthly, you could talk about what prevents us from being deceived. That's a theme also of the chapter. Don't be deceived. So maybe pick one, have a chat, and then we might have, if you have time, we'll uh, share a few thoughts after that. Is that okay? Right. Yeah, being equipped is a big factor, isn't it? Uh, you're far less likely to be deceived when you... You have some tools at your disposal to examine what people are telling you. And sometimes that's something you have, and sometimes it's something somebody else has. So you can imagine, if anybody ever gives me some kind of interesting medical uh, opinion about some magical miracle drug or treatment, what's the first thing I do is I go and talk to my fount of medical knowledge, my, my good lady wife. And she knows everything, of course. <laughs> Dawn knows well, but I, you know, obviously that's, I don't think, oh yeah, you know, I know a bit about medical things. I mean, I've been to hospital once or twice. I mean, I, you know, I, 
I'm married to a doctor, I know a lot. You know, no, I, I, I need to actually go to her. So there's that, there's that side of it. In 1 Corinthians 15:33, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. One of the ways we get deceived is by just simply hanging out with the wrong people. And that could be people, physical people, or it could be people online. And I say people online, because a lot of the time we actually don't know who they are or if they're really people. I mean, honestly, it could be some bot that you're getting your information from. So uh, that's one thing to bear in mind. And I think 1 Corinthians 1, First uh, John 1, 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Now, that's a, t a challenge for us, isn't it? It's not necessarily other people deceiving us. It's us deceiving ourselves. Uh, and finally, for on this one, Galatians 6, verse 7, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. So there are consequences to all our actions. But that helps moderate our behavior and be a little more alert. Well, let's wrap up and take communion together, the Lord's Supper. There's a lot in this passage. We haven't done justice to it in many ways, but that's okay. I hope that you'll go away and study Matthew, Mark 13 yourself and come up with your own ideas about what Jesus is really saying here. But I pray and hope we won't miss the fact that Jesus in his love for his disciples and for us warns us that the possibility of not standing firm is there. The possibility of being deceived is there. The possibility of being overwhelmed is there. But with him, we can avoid that. And that's what he wants for us all. You know, uh, he says, stay awake, stay alert, and watch. There are times to sleep. And uh, some of us uh, are finding sleep more difficult than others at different times, right? And then when you have difficulty sleeping, and then you get that really good night's sleep. Oh my goodness, you feel like a millionaire the next morning. There's a time for sleeping, but there's also a time for staying awake, even when it's hard or, 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 or just challenging in some way or other. And I think about Gethsemane. Think about Gethsemane. Next slide, Akin, if we could. Um, that's Gethsemane today. We were there with some friends a few years ago, and our friend, we were all spent some time praying in Gethsemane. It's a very moving experience, as you can imagine. And of course, just after this passage, in the next chapter of Mark, in chapter 14, Jesus is in that very place. He's in Gethsemane. And he asks his disciples to sit here while I pray. I don't suppose they had benches like they do now. But he asked them to sit and be alert and awake with him while he prayed in his time of greatest sorrow and distress. And he's troubled and he prays, my soul's overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch. It's the same thing he's saying here. You need to keep watch. And he goes a bit further, falls to the ground, prays. But if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples. And what did he find? He found them catching some Z's. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? I mean, what a, I mean of course he was asleep. And, right? I mean, he knew, Jesus knew that. Are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Just the one hour. Watch and pray. He uses that word again. Watch. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. What happens? 
It goes away, prays some more, comes back, and they're still sleeping. Their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Well, he goes about the third time, comes back, they're still sleeping and resting. Jesus stayed awake because he needed all of God's strength to go through what was ahead. Jesus was able to stand firm. He was able to love to the end. He was able to trust the Father to the end because he stayed alert. He watched and prayed. What might it be that could help us this week to watch and pray with greater attention to what God is doing and alert so that we're not deceived? As we take bread and wine now, these emblems can strengthen our remembrance of what Jesus did for us so that we're strengthened in our devotion to him and strengthened in our watchfulness, our alertness, not only to avoid what is evil, but also so that we can be empowered to do what is good in his kingdom. Someone's going to pray for us now.